Hello, everyone. Redcoat here. And Santia here also. And uh, we're getting into another podcast for you. Yep, this is part one of three on builds, and we're going to start this uh, this series off by talking about builds in Guild Wars 1, and hopefully I can manage to stay on topic and not ramble too badly. Yeah, I'll try my best, but uh, you're the expert on this particular one. Yep, I played a lot of Guild Wars 1 back in the day, the day being several years from like 2005 to like 2000, I don't know, 8, 9. Mm. 2000X. <laughs> anyway, so we're going to start off here with kind of a brief overview of how builds work, just in kind of a general sense. There's a lot of detail that I could go into here. I know because I did, and then we realized it was way more detail than necessary. So kind of this this sort of brief overview. Uh, so... A build in Guild Wars 1 is mainly composed of skills, and every skill has its kind of its own effect and cost. And the only thing that you can truly say that all skills have in common is that each one requires one of your eight skill slots to use. So you have eight skill slots on your skill bar, and skills fit into those. That's how that works. Yeah. Um, so skills are associated with professions, and professions is just the term that Guild Wars 1 and 2, both of them, call their classes. Uh, so in, in most games, you'd call them like a, a class, like a fighter or a mage or whatever. Well, they call them professions because. So there's also another version of skills called an elite skill. I think we've brought them up in a previous podcast uh, yeah. about uh, character progression. I think they got brought up there. Yeah. Um, so elite skills kind of have powerful effects or function a bit differently. But the most notable thing for, for the moment is that you can only have one elite skill on your bar at a time. And it can be any skill from either your primary or secondary profession. We'll get into that in a moment. And elite skills, they often can end up as kind of the centerpiece of your build, or they may just be what, you know, helps your build work efficiently enough to actually function, things like that, or they can really augment or, or supplement what you're trying to do. Yeah, and that's a, uh, one of the things that we'll be um, noting throughout here is that it is... Um, with all of these concepts of like the skills and the elite skills, they add to player choice throughout the building system. Yeah. So when you create a character, you select a primary profession, and uh, you also get to select a secondary profession, which can be any of the other professions that is not your primary profession. You can't pick the same profession twice. That doesn't make any sense. Your secondary profession gives you access to almost everything it would if it was your primary profession. So you get all of the skills and most of the attribute lines, but you do not get access to its primary attribute line. What an attribute line is, is it dictates how strong your skills are, because skills will be linked to attribute lines. So the more attribute points you put into those, the stronger the linked skills will get, the fewer points you have, and the, the weaker they'll be. Your primary profession does give you the primary attribute line, uh, as mentioned. It also dictates how much energy you have access to. Energy is kind of what they just called mana. It's just your generic yeah. thing equivalent. It's the thing you the thing you spend to use your abilities. Yeah, so they called it energy in this game because mana wasn't generic enough. Um, the other thing that's relevant about your primary profession is that you can equip runes on your armor to increase the attributes of your primary profession. So you can't do that for your secondary professions. Uh, as I was mentioning, skills are associated with attribute lines. So attributes, though, as you you raise them, you consume attribute points, and you only have so many attribute points. You only have enough to really max out two attribute lines at once. You can kind of split it up a little bit more if you want to. Um, so you don't, you know, necessarily maximize everything. But the thing that's important about this is you cannot maximize every single attribute line. You have to kind of pick and choose where you're going to be spending these attribute points. The other thing that's important to note is 
Aside from primary attribute lines, other attribute lines do not have any sort of inherent effect, so putting points in them doesn't get you any sort of passives unless it's your primary. Primary attribute lines do, and that helps create unique distinction between each profession. So Guild Wars 1, it's a team-based game, and you, you play with a small squad of other players when you go into combat zones. When you're in a combat zone, you can't change your build. When you're out of a combat zone, more of a persistent world area, there you can freely change your build, you can change all of your skills, you can uh, change all of your attributes, whatever. You're free to do that in, in those zones. Um, but when you're in a combat zone, you're committed to what you decided to walk into that zone with when it comes to skills and attributes. So when you're planning for that, you're you're kind of have an idea of what to expect, who you expect to be playing with, what sort of things they can do. And so this combination of who you're going to be playing with, where you're going to be going, these sorts of things dictate what sort of roles you'll need for your teammates to fill and also just how you're going to fill those roles. We'll we'll talk about those in just a moment, but just what we're saying here is the way that filling some sort of role looks might change a little bit from zone to zone. And you just you try to customize what you're doing to try to conquer the challenges you expect to face. Yeah, so when uh, when Cientier was describing the different ways that characters could fill their roles and the things that they would do on the teams, we came up with two basic distinctions yeah, of what they do. Generic categories, as it were. Yeah, and so it's either party support or enemy disruption. And this is a very, very broad, but um, that's intended. Yeah, so things like party support are where, say, you are healing an ally, or you're applying some sort of buff to them to reduce the damage they'll take, or to increase their movement speed. Like, there's a lot of different things in there. And enemy disruption is going to be things like, say, putting a negative debuff on an enemy to cause them damage, or just hitting them in the face for damage. Things like that. So it's, it's a very broad idea, but it kind of makes sense. Like, there is no tank in this game. That's not a role that exists. So there can be things where there's overlap, where disrupting an enemy is supporting your party. Yeah. A good example of that is applying a snare, which is a uh, movement speed debuff, to a melee attacking enemy. It prevents them from getting into your line as easily or chasing your, your dudes around. So there's there's lots of different ways that these can kind of play out. And as we kind of go through things a little bit more, some of these might get brought up to more specific ideas of what this might look like. Yeah. I brought up the concept of professions earlier, and uh, we're going to talk about them, and hopefully not for too long, because there's a lot to say. Uh, so I'm going to start by just running down what each of the professions are, and kind of what they're good for, and, and kind of what they do. So this is in no particular order, although there's a little bit of an order. Uh, the games came out as Guild Wars Prophecies, Guild Wars Factions, and Guild Wars Nightfall. The first game had six professions, and then two more were added on each one. I have put them in a rough order of, here's the game that they came out in. Mm -hmm. But uh, beyond that, this is no particular order. So we'll start with the warrior. This is kind of an expected one. It's a melee fighter, uh, specializes in three different types of weapons, hammer, axe, and sword. Each one has kind of different things that they're good at. Tends to be fairly fairly uh, buff and, and difficult to damage, higher armor and whatnot. Uh, then you have the monk. So one of the things that I've noticed about this game is it's recontextualized how I think of monk because apparently a lot of other games, monk is kind of a fisty brawlies dude. Mm -hmm. in, uh, in Guild Wars 1, the monk is your healer class. So they are centered around that. Their primary attribute increases how much they heal people. Most of their skills are dedicated to healing. That's just what they do. Then you have the Mesmer. So the Mesmer is a really interesting profession. I'd like to see this sort of thing in more games. What they are dedicated to doing is disrupting the enemy in a lot of really interesting and unique ways. One of the notable skills 
is one that a debuff that says if an enemy uses a skill in the next couple of seconds, that skill takes like an additional 50 seconds to recharge, which is a, just a huge amount of time. Mm-hmm. So just things like that. There's a number of interesting things that they do there. Then there's the Elementalist, which is kind of a traditional Black Mage type character, uh, associated attribute lines with each of the four sort of standard elements of Earth, Fire, Wind, and Water. Well, they called it Air, and it was mostly lightning attacks, but yeah. uh, there was some stuff like, hey, here's a blast of wind to knock people over. Each of those different elements kind of had different things they specialized in, like Fire was really good at area of effect, for example, and Air, Lightning, whatever, was more effective at single target, right. that sort of thing. Uh, then there was the Necromancer, which they uh, were kind of focused around debuffing enemies. They had some stuff for buffing allies, but it was really about putting a lot of potentially very nasty debuffs on enemies. And then also making minions out of corpses. So, you know, raising the undead is a, a big deal, you'd think, with necromancers. And indeed, the necromancers in this game can do it. Uh, one notable thing about necromancers is their primary attribute is called soul reaping. And it has a very potent effect where you get energy whenever something around you dies. Mm. There is a frequency cap on this because there didn't used to be, and then it was really busted. <laughs> they also didn't used to have a cap on the number of minions they could make, but they introduced one later because apparently hordes of like 30 minions was considered too many. Uh, I would think so. <laughs> it was fun at the time. But um, anyway, so that that's kind of the necromancer, and there's a lot that soul reaping line of getting energy can be used and abused for. Uh, then there's the ranger. This is kind of what you'd think of as kind of a, an Aragorn type character in a way, but very survival oriented, not as much in the way of like buffing others, but very like I am protecting myself focused. They also can have a pet, uh, which, you know, is popular with a bunch of people and complained about by those people because they wanted the AI to be better. And rangers wielded bows, so you could actually, if you syncoded a ranger, you could use a bow if you wanted to, for example. Uh, then there's the assassins. So this is the first of professions that was introduced in, in later games. So assassins, they are really about getting into an enemy's face, dealing lots of damage, and then stop being in the enemy's face because they don't want to be there mm-hmm. long term. They're a bit more fragile. I want to tell a story about how when the game first came out, everybody made an assassin, named it Naruto, and promptly hated assassins because they waded into the front line like a warrior and got squished. (laughs) Yeah. Assassins wield daggers, and daggers have kind of a unique attack style among weapons because they have a sort of chain system, uh, which is really a neat system. Then there's ritualists, also introduced in factions. These are, they're kind of like location control-y people. Um, they have fantasy turrets, which are kind of like spirits that they summon from the underworld and bind there to like attack things or provide buffs to allies. Mm-hmm. They also have other effects. They kind of do a little bit of everything. One of the most notable things is that they have some of the better healing spells outside of the monk capabilities. Mm. So what's particularly notable is their healing spells work well despite not having access to divine favor. Like a monk with good divine favor, which is the additional healing that monks get, will be better than what a ritualist by itself can do. But if you're not a monk, then the ritualist stuff is probably a little better. Mm. And then we reach uh, the the last game, uh, the professions introduced by Nightfall. So there's the Dervish, which is a melee fighter. They wield a scythe. And the uh, scythe is unique among weapons in that it can hit in a bit of an area of effect. Mm. Its damage is pretty inconsistent, but being able to hit an area of effect is super strong was abused on assassins, interestingly enough. But they are kind of like a more mystical fighter type class where Mm -hmm. they put interesting effects on themselves and all sorts of strange things. And then you have the Paragon. So the Paragon, kind of the the best way of describing it is it's... So the warrior is a frontline soldier, and the Paragon 
is a backline soldier. They wield a spear, mm -hmm. and uh, they have this very unique energy-gaining mechanic where when they use a specific type of skill that affects allies in the area, they get energy for that. Right. So there are a lot of different ways that these can kind of be combined. Some notable ones, Mesmers, for example, are known for working with elementalist spells, particularly airline spells that dealt lots of damage. You know, might have kind of a longish cast time, but Mesmers have their primary attribute would speed up cast time. Mm. And that would allow them to be able to get out these air spells very quickly, and that would make it harder to stop them. One of the, the key combat concepts in the game was interrupting. Right. Which is where an effect would stop you from doing what you're doing. It'd interrupt your skill or your attack or whatever. Right. Rangers and Mesmers tended to be the best at this, but most professions had access to some amount of interrupt. Mm. So because they're able to get these powerful elementalist spells out in a, a speed that is much harder to disrupt uh, through interrupts, they they could more easily spike down a target. So that's inflict a lot of damage all at once. Apparently, ArenaNet didn't like this, so they eventually said, hey, you know what? Fast casting, not going to affect spells uh, that aren't Mesmer spells that have a cast time less than two seconds. Yeah, it, um, was, a, it was a balance patch, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not going to get into that topic now because we would need to get out of here sometime tonight. Uh -huh. but, <laughs> um, there was also other interesting things that you'd see come up. Uh, there's a notable build with Rangers. Their primary attribute line was Expertise, and it reduced the cost of a bunch of different types of skills. Not spells, but skills. Yeah. Um, notably, touch skills. So there's some Necromancer touch skills that would drain life from a target mm. that had like a super quick recharge, but you had to be right in the enemy's face, which is not exactly where a Necromancer wants to be, and they had kind of a prohibitively high energy cost, even for a Necromancer. Mm. But expertise on the ranger made them actually somewhat affordable it made them a lot cheaper so the ranger could just run up to you and just start draining all of your life yeah it makes me think of aragorn as a nazgul <laughs> <laughs> something kind of like that yeah <laughs> but it was effective because it's really hard to stop life gain and rangers are naturally durable mm -hmm. and when they're stealing a bunch of life from you they're even more durable yeah um not a great spike build, but very good, like, pressure. sustained pressure. Yeah. yeah. Necromancers. Uh, so I, I mentioned that necromancers were known for sort of abusing the energy gain they could get from soul reaping. Yeah. Uh, so one common thing that happened is, for example, using a ritualist. So they would take along the ritualist healing skills, and they would use all of this energy that they're getting from the enemies dying to keep their party alive. Mm. Uh, which is a very interesting yeah. sort of dark healer in a way. Uh, that was that was kind of an interesting an interesting one. There's also stuff where assassins were really good at getting critical hits. It's yeah. kind of what they specialized in. So there's things where they could kind of try to abuse that with bows or scythes in particular. I think scythes actually received a bit of a nerf to their critical hits or something just because of this. Oh yeah, because of assassins. Um, yeah. Then there's some interesting notable things, particularly with Paragon. There's a bunch of cast professions that have some very useful spells, especially Monk. Uh, so I mentioned elite skills. One of the things that you'll note with elite skills, uh, because you can only have one on your bar, the elite skill slot for the monk was highly competitive. They needed it to either be really good energy management or very efficient, because energy management was a key idea. You had to make sure that you could keep doing the thing that you needed to do, which mm -hmm. was done by managing your energy reserves. Yeah. So monk energy costs are super, super tight. Uh, they have to, to try to run as efficiently as they can. So the elite skills that they can use are tend to be very limited to a select few of like the most efficient skills because otherwise they're not able to do their job very well. Mm-hmm. 
Um, they really need that elite skill to kind of bolster everything. So there's a lot of really powerful monk elite skills that monks just reasonably speaking cannot use because they just do not have the energy yeah. space for them. But paragons, which kind of sit in the back line, chucking spears at people and supporting the party, they're designed similarly-ish to warriors where they don't need energy to run because mm-hmm. they work off of a different resource called adrenaline that's built up by attacking. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little bit by being hit, but predominantly by attacking. So each time you hit, you get a strike of adrenaline and then skills would cost some amount. And using this combined with their ability to gain energy by using skills to buff allies around them that Mm -hmm. don't require energy, they could then use, say, some of these powerful monk elite skills to support the party, which I thought was a really cool way of actually allowing some of these skills to see the light of day. Yeah, but all of this is to say with all of these different, you know, combinations Mm -hmm. of of things where it's like barely scratched the surface yeah like there's tons of them but it's a deal of where you know you have your primary which is like you say you'd be a warrior primary monk secondary that causes different things and then even inside of there the skills that you choose to use will do even more to personalize that um, build yeah and it's interesting too where you could grab access to skills that you would otherwise not want to use on the as a primary. Like a primary monk would be somewhat hesitant to use uh, mending touch, for example, which is a skill that could heal uh, some conditions off of an ally, so get rid of some debuffs. Mm-hmm. But you have to be in touch range. You don't want to do that with your front line. Yeah. Uh, but you know your warriors are perfectly happy to. They are your front line. They yeah. can use this. I think they could use it on themselves, but they could use it on each other too. So it's in a way where you can kind of do that. Or um, there's a necromancer skill that lets you transfer conditions from yourself to an enemy. Mm-hmm. But you have to be in touch range. You have to be in melee range. Necromancers again don't really like being in that spot. Yeah, but you know your warriors or your uh, your dervishes, for example, that's kind of where they belong. So yeah. they're happy to use that sort of skill. And that's one of the things that really makes this uh, really makes the build system uh, in Gold's Wars one really shine is that variability and that idea that there are so many interesting ways to build your experience and express yourself through your through your character. Yeah, like there's a lot of sort of unique and effective possibilities you can do to overcome just different stuff. But with that in mind, the system wasn't necessarily perfect. Yeah, there's always downsides, right? And while, again, you have a lot of room for experimentation, self-expression with this sort of build system, it's a complicated build system. Like, there's a bunch of really very serious downsides, and like I said, it's complicated. That means there's a steep learning curve, it can be intimidating to new players, and it was a problem that just kept growing as more games were released. Not to mention that they're kind of starting to scrape the bottom of the barrel of what to do with professions. Yeah, and it was very easy for new players to make bad builds just because of the other stuff in the first, uh, our first reasoning. And that just makes the game harder in a way that you don't realize what you're doing wrong. Yeah, as an example of this, there's a monk skill called Heal Other, which heals for like somewhere around like three times as much HP as sort of the first heal skill you get, which mm-hmm. is a really crappy skill called Orison of Healing, and, and nobody uses that seriously later in the game. But this, uh, this Heal Other is a really potent heal, but it costs a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. And a monk bar, because the energy costs are so tight, it just cannot sustain that. But unless you really know what's going on with the systems, you don't understand that this skill is not worth its energy. It looks like it is. Mm-hmm. It really looks like it should be worth its energy, but it's not. 
And it's something where it's really easy for a new player to think, oh, this is a great skill. It heals for so much. This is amazing. And they want to use it. And it just subtly makes their build worse. Yeah, and this leads to the last big issue that we're going to highlight, which is the concept of build elitism, which is that idea that because it's very easy to make bad builds, uh, that means that for other players to accept you into their parties and things like that, they either need to recognize the build that you're making or they have to really be willing to take a chance on you. And that makes things very difficult. Yeah, for sure. And it's not entirely unfounded either. They want to not have to waste a bunch of time on your bad build causing them to fail and have to restart things over and over again. Yeah. Um, as was stated in our MMO talk just a little bit earlier. In fact, I think it would be a week earlier. Yep. A week earlier for you. You have a lot of people that are investing time and energy into this. And time is a very, is a real resource. Uh, yeah. And you don't get that back. Um, and because of that, it's very important to players to actually be successful mm-hmm. when they make their endeavors in these things. Because they'll have spent so much time getting everyone together. And then it's like, okay, it's time. We're all together. Let's go and do this. And then you have that one guy, that one guy who doesn't have the right build. Yeah. Um, and that can really mess you up. But it makes for a negative connotation to actually trying new things. Yeah, it certainly can. So uh, Arena Nut, the developer of Guild Wars 1 and 2, when they were making Guild Wars 2, um, one of the things that they wanted to, to look to do is to try to see what they could do to address these problems. The problems of complexity and increasing complexity. The problem of new players making bad builds and accidentally making the game way harder for themselves because of it. Um, and also the sort of very logical process of build elitism where players could not find parties because they didn't have or didn't want to run, you know, this specific sort of cookie cutter build or whatever. The sort of accepted good build. You know, they wanted to run their own thing. And we'll, we'll be talking about this next week and kind of looking to see what did ArenaNet do to try to address these problems and, and how successful was that attempt or it, those it, attempts, I suppose. Yeah, so tune in next time. With that, I think we can go to the sign-off for today's cast. I agree. This is Santier, signing off. And this is Redcoat, signing off. Play the games you want to play, boyo.